This is our last sermon in a short series we've been calling Zeal. Uh, Once again, zeal is great enthusiasm or energy connected to God and walking in his ways. But zeal, as we've been exploring, isn't always too easy to sustain. Even as I've preached through this series, I've felt my own zeal rise and fall in a few four weeks. And even over the course of following Jesus, there's seasons where our zeal shines brightly and then simmers down or even fades away altogether. And so my hope in this series has been to find a way for that fire of zeal to burn steadily, to have a sustainable zeal for God. And I think there is a viable way for that to happen, and we'll look at that this morning. But even if we have zeal, even if we have zeal for God, even if we have great enthusiasm and energy for God, sometimes we still need to re-examine our zeal because you can be zealous for God, but it doesn't mean it is healthy. From time to time, we need to have our zeal reconfigured. And fortunately, there's a handful of examples of this in the scriptures of people who are zealous for God, apostles and prophets, but they have to look at their zeal and see that even though they were zealous For God, it wasn't healthy and their zeal had to be reconfigured. And so this morning, I want to look at just two examples from Scripture. A mountain with Elijah and a road with Paul. So let's start with the mountain. We get a glimpse of the life of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. And in chapter 19 from our reading, the prophet is at Mount Horeb. And to make sense of why he's at this mountain at all, we need a bit of Elijah's Backstory. So I'm going to give you a short history of Elijah. Elijah was the exemplar, exemplar of prophets. He was the prophet of prophets. He was a big deal in Israel's history. And the short account of his life really is quite remarkable. You know, Elijah, he prayed and there was a drought for three years. As he traveled throughout Israel during this drought, God miraculously provided food for his hosts. During that time, Elijah even raised someone from the dead. And and that's all impressive. But the story that actually helps us make sense of this passage is Elijah's uh, confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, Elijah summoned all these false prophets together and he met them and he challenged them. He said, set up a sacrifice and I will too. And call on your God and the God who can light these sacrifices on fire without our help. He is the Lord. And so the many prophets of Baal, they put on a grand religious show. They're full of zeal, but their God doesn't answer because their God does not speak because their God is not real. But then Elijah, he gets water doused all over his sacrifice time and time again till it is so wet. There is no humanly possible way this could ever be lit on fire. And then he prays and the God of his ancestors, the God of gods, the Lord, the one true God, the fire goes ablaze. The sacrifice is consumed. This is what happens immediately before our passage. You see, throughout Elijah's life, he confronted kings who were corrupt, and he confronted false prophets alike. His life was devoted to seeking after the kingdom of God. And all along the way, his life was marked by the miraculous. And yet, as unordinary as his life sounds, as many questions as it raises for us, Elijah remained a very ordinary person. One word explains why we now find him at Mount Horeb. Fear. Fresh off his victory against the prophets of Baal, Elijah runs away from it all. And he runs away because Queen uh, Jezebel wants him dead. 
And so Elijah throws in the towel, he gives up, he runs away. And we're told in 1 Kings 19.4 that Elijah went on a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. Now take a moment and... And try to connect with Elijah's sense of despondency. He's utterly discouraged, undone, disappointed. Take away my life. Have you ever been so low you've prayed that prayer? I have. I've been there. But this is not the kind of prayer God is in the business of answering. Rather, Joy Clarkson gets to the heart of what happens next in such a lovely way. She says, Elijah said, God, I'm so mad. I want to die. So God said, here's some food. Why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept, ate, and decided things weren't so bad. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. That's what comes next. God sent an angel to provide food for Elijah, and then Elijah sleeps And then it's repeated the next day. And although there's this supernatural element to the provision, it's also very normal and human, sleeping and napping. And sometimes that's exactly what we need. Some of you just need to slow down and take care of yourself. Your zeal for Jesus is actually healthy, but your lack of boundaries isn't. And so you're running yourself ragged and you're exhausted. And so you just need to stop and rest and take care of yourself, and even allow others to help take care of you. You see, part of maintaining our zeal and passion for Jesus means learning how to celebrate our limits rather than denying them, accepting that we're merely humans who still need to eat and sleep in order to follow our Lord. And in fact, I had to do this for myself this past week. I hit a wall, and by the time Wednesday came around, I couldn't get past it. I was just staring at a computer screen, staring at people I was meeting with, and I I couldn't seem to write. I couldn't seem to think. I just kept hitting this wall, and so I said, all right, I got to take a day off. So I slept. I ate. I watched The Office. uh, I went for a walk on the seawall. I took a journal and a book I love, and I spent a lot of time in prayer with God, observing nature, enjoying the sun. I got a massage that was okay, uh, and then I went home and spent time with my family. And there was nothing supernatural about it, but these ordinary things replenished my soul. They helped me reconnect with the presence of God. I didn't hear anything profound, but it was enough to bring that rest back into the depths of my being so that by the time I went back to work the next day, I was ready to work well and work hard. You see, for Elijah, a nap and snacks weren't all he needed. It was part of what he needed. It turns out he also needed to be refreshed in the presence of God. So after a nap and snacks, Elijah was directed to go to Mount Horeb. And that's kind of exciting because throughout Scripture, mountains are thin places. This is where God meets his people. This is where heaven intersects with earth. And so Elijah, he's up at Mount Horeb for 40 days. And in his mind, he's like, that's Moses. Something big is happening right here. And finally, the word of the Lord came to him. And we read in 1 Kings 19, 9 through 10, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
Elijah said, I've been very jealous, or it can actually be translated, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I love the simplicity of God's question. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're not a monk. You're a prophet. You've still got breath in your lungs, which means I still have a message to say through you. What are you doing here? And hopefully you see why we're paying attention to Elijah this morning. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. But now I'm all alone. And they're going to kill me. Which adds up to this. I'm here at this mountain because what difference does my zeal for you make? I'm here on this mountain because what difference does my faith make? Have you ever been there? You've been excited about God, learning about the ways of Jesus. You're trying to pursue him with your life, but then life just keeps happening. Day after day, the minutiae, the everyday moments happen, and you can't help but think, even in the good times, what difference does this make? Because bills still need to be paid, and your family might still be dysfunctional, and your marriage might still be hard, or your singleness might still be painful, and the loneliness hasn't changed. You see, in church culture, we can talk a big deal about the kingdom, but at times it can feel far away from our everyday lives. And I can't tell you how many times my own zeal for Jesus has led to profound disappointment and even discouragement. I deeply long to see people transformed by the gospel, encountering his presence. And I planted this church with my wife because I have zeal to see people come to know Jesus. And when it happens, I celebrate, but it happens rarely. And it actually happens very, very slowly in this post-Christian context. And I long to see transformation in our lives, in my life and in your life. But if we're honest, it's hard to measure, isn't it? Because we say, oh, we want to become more like Jesus. We want to be formed in Christ-likeness. But then we look at our lives and we say, what progress am I actually making? I feel a lot like I did a year ago or several years ago. Paul says we're changed degree by degree, but that might be a little too generous. On my bad days, I can sit down like Elijah, and say to God, I've been zealous for you. But what difference does it make? I thought I'd be further along. I thought things would be different. I thought your kingdom is supposed to come on earth as it is in heaven. What difference does it make? Have you ever had any of these thoughts? Any of these frustrations? Any of these disappointments? Zeal does not protect us from profound disappointment. And it does not insulate us from difficulties. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, if you have zeal for God's kingdom, you will most certainly experience disappointment. Because if we're zealous for God's kingdom and ways to happen in our midst, our zeal has to endure living in a world that is not zealous for God and his ways. The cultural commentator Mark Sayers says, in this post-Christian age, everybody wants the kingdom without the king. 
Everybody's excited for justice and goodness and kindness and faithfulness, and society looks pretty good. It feels a lot like what we think the kingdom's supposed to be like, and yet it's in complete opposition to the kingdom because they don't want the king. And it's hard to maintain a zeal for God and his ways when the world around us feels good enough without him. And it hurts over time. You see, Elijah, he's been zealous for God and his kingdom. He wants to see Israel restored. He's been a faithful prophet who's calling corrupt kings to repentance. He's calling the people of God to return to God with repentance and faithfulness. But nothing has changed. Nothing's gotten better. The kingdom still hasn't come. Corruption still reigns. False worship is still happening all over the land. The world is still broken. And Elijah feels like he's the only one who even cares. What difference does my zeal for you make, Lord? And then it happens. Usually when God draws someone to a mountain, it's not just for their own sake. He's going to do something big in the world. But then God shows up for Elijah in a very personal way. We're told in verses 11 and 12, behold, it's just a great word, isn't it? Behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I think if we're honest, this is the sort of experience many of us want. Maybe not this precise one, but we want God to act in a dramatic and observable way, and we believe that's going to help our faith. But think about how many miracles Elijah has seen firsthand up until this point. And here he is on the mountain completely discouraged. And now the miraculous is happening around him again, but it turns out that's not what he needs. Great and strong wind breaks the mountain around Elijah, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. The earth quaked, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. A fire erupts, which would be very uh, reminiscent of this challenge he just had with the prophets of Baal. The fire The victory, but the Lord was not in the fire. No, the Lord was a low whisper. The Hebrew is literally a thin silence. You know when you pray and you stop speaking and you sit with God because you don't know what to say and you're waiting for God to speak and all you hear is silence. A thin silence that permeates all of creation. The Lord was in that low whisper, a thin silence. Then God asks Elijah the same question. He won't let it go. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah gives the exact same response. I've been zealous for you. I'm all alone. It's all worthless. So what changed in this interaction? What actually happened? You see, sometimes our zeal, it brings us to this point of despair. We yearn for God and yet we get profoundly disappointed or frustrated because our faith doesn't seem to make the difference we think it should. But if our zeal brings us to despair, perhaps it's a sign that our zeal needs to be examined and reconfigured. Elijah has said, I have been zealous for God. 
But what did Ezekiel do? Ezekiel drove him to run away from God and desire death. Zeal for God that drives you away from God needs to be examined and reconfigured. It's contradictory. You see, Elijah was zealous for the kingdom of God. That's undeniable when you look at his life. But perhaps, slowly over time, as these things often build, Elijah lost sight of the fact that God actually cares. Elijah lost sight of the fact that God actually cares. Think about it. Elijah has already said, I'm all alone. I'm the only one left. I may as well die. That does not sound like someone who thinks God cares, let alone cares about him. And the whisper the thin silence is meant to undo this false story for Elijah. You see, in that moment, Elijah discovered how the whisper of God is stronger than the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And he needed to be reminded that the God who is with him and the God who is for him is greater than the threat of all his enemies, even the murderous queen Jezebel. And Elijah needed to be remembered that although he can't always see how or why, God is at work bringing his kingdom in this place. And in fact, God tells Elijah, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people who have not compromised to the temples of Baal. But most of all, Elijah needed to be reminded that God cares for him. For him, for Elijah. And I'm sure as Elijah heard that thin silence. He saw how his zeal was out of whack, how it, had, how it had led him away from God rather than toward God, and it needed to be reconfigured. You see, it's good to be zealous for God's kingdom and his ways, but that is not enough. You see, on the mountain, Elijah was reminded just how close God is to him and just how much God cares for his beloved prophet. And it's only this intimate experience of God's presence that can sustain zeal for his kingdom. If you lose zeal for the presence of God, your zeal for his kingdom will ultimately crush you because you want the kingdom without the king. And so I want to ask, have you ever heard this whisper of God? Have you ever had those moments where you you feel God in the thin silence where you know he's close at hand and even cares for you. Having joined Elijah at the mountain with this whisper, I now want to turn to our second example, a road with the apostle Paul. See, if Elijah was the prophet of prophets, Paul was the rising star of ancient Judaism. You know, prior to his life as an apostle, Paul was a devout Pharisee. This was one of the most extreme and strict expressions of ancient Judaism. And he trained under a famous rabbi. He had all the right credentials. By all appearances, Paul was religious and holy. And in Galatians, he reflects upon his life prior to encountering Christ. And he says this in Galatians 1.14, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. 
And his zeal drove him to protect Judaism against this new movement called Christianity. As far as he was concerned, Jesus was a false Messiah, and his followers were blasphemers because they weren't just claiming he was the Messiah. They were claiming he was none other than God's son, God in the flesh. And so in his zeal, Paul became a persecutor of the church. The book of Acts describes him as breathing out murderous threats against the church and traveling through the region, arresting Christians and having them thrown into jail. For the ancient church, Paul was their Jezebel. But then Paul encountered Jesus for himself on the road to Damascus. A light shines around him and he's knocked off his donkey and he encounters Jesus and he hears Jesus ask him, why are you persecuting me? And this experience on the road was Paul's undoing. But it was also his remaking. You see, he came to see over the next few days and years that Jesus really is the Messiah of Israel. He really was the hope they were waiting for. That Jesus really did die and rise. That you really can encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. He not only came to believe Jesus was the Messiah, but as a Jew who is monotheistic, he came to believe that Jesus was none other than God himself. And all this caused Paul to re-examine his previous zeal. Because it turns out, his zeal for God and the traditions of his fathers, in all of that zeal, he was actually opposing God. Can you imagine? You are so zealous for God, and then you discover in that you were actually opposing God. You know, no wonder Paul re-examined himself. Paul knew everything there was to know about God. He knew everything there was to know about the scriptures, but he did not really know him. And we see some of Paul's re-examination in Romans chapter 10, our second reading this morning. Paul writes in Romans 10, 1 through 2, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, don't misunderstand Paul here. He hasn't suddenly turned on Judaism. He is not against Judaism. He remains a Jew through and through. Earlier in Romans, he writes that he wishes he could be cut off from Christ if it meant that all of Israel could come to see the truth. But since encountering Jesus for himself... Paul came to see that his previous zeal was not based on knowledge. Do you see what he's saying here? You can be incredibly zealous for God. You can know a lot about God. You can be well studied and read. You can be devoted to the traditions built around God. You might be extremely religious and holy and yet not have saving faith. Not have zeal according to knowledge. You can have all the knowledge in the world and yet still lack the knowledge that actually matters. The psychologist David Brenner writes in his helpful little book, uh, The Gift of Being Yourself, truly transformational knowledge is always personal, never merely objective. It involves knowing of not merely knowing about, and it's always relational. It involves knowing of, 
not merely knowing about, and it is always relational. This is the kind of knowledge Paul's speaking about. If I owned a book called The Wonderful Julia, I could learn a lot about Julia. I might discover, as some of you have, that she can just rip it up on the dance floor at a wedding. I might discover that she's strong and resilient, that she's an exceptionally talented counselor, that she is a faithful and wonderful mother, and that she excels at cheesy romance. I could read the book cover to cover, and so could you, and we would both know the same amount about Julia. That's knowing about her. I can only know of Julia through life together, through experiencing her in all of these moments and accumulating this experiential knowledge. This is the kind of knowing Elijah experienced on Mount Horeb. This is the kind of knowing Paul experienced when he was knocked off his donkey. This is the kind of knowing that Paul wants every follower of Jesus to have. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're called to know about God. Knowledge matters. We don't get to just determine who we think God is or who Jesus is or what is true. God has revealed himself to the world through the scriptures. And through the scriptures, we discover the attributes of God and the way he's worked in the world through Israel and how he brought his son for the salvation of the world. That's where God reveals who he is. But Paul understands that it's not sufficient just to know about all of this. You need to know of this. They go hand in hand. This is why Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, there is a big and loaded theological statement Paul clearly knows a lot about Jesus and what he did and what it means. But he also speaks of Christ's love in a deeply personal and intimate way. He loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul didn't just experience this once on the road to Damascus. This is his ongoing experience as a follower of Jesus. He encounters the power of God's love through the Spirit time and time again. You see, he was no longer zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He became extremely zealous for the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you have this kind of transformational knowledge? Have you heard Jesus whisper into your soul, I love you. I died for you. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and follow me. Have you encountered the whisper of Christ in the depths of your being? You see, you might not have the dramatic experience of Elijah or Paul. Some people have these experiences, some don't. When we approach Scripture and we see these experiences, we have to remember that they usually relate to God's great movement in the world to bring about his son and the salvation of all people. So these are not always normative experiences that we can expect for ourselves. They still happen to some people, but they don't always happen to all people. But the conviction of scripture is that everyone 
can hear this whisper. Everyone can know Christ's love in a deeply personal way. Have you heard that whisper? Have you had this knowing of, this transformational knowledge? As we think about these two experiences of zeal being reconfigured, we see that Elijah had zeal for God that caused him to run away from God, and that Paul had zeal for God that caused him to be opposed to God, and that their zeal needed to be reconfigured. On the mountain, we see it's reconfigured by encountering the whisper of God that that God cares for you. Through Paul, we see it's this transformative knowing, this encountering Jesus in the depths of your innermost being, that God wants you to have a knowing of his closeness and love. And so I'm convinced that the only viable way for us to sustain zeal is knowing God's love for us. Knowing God's love for you. So if you're despairing, if you're despairing, if it's hard, if your zeal has inadvertently caused you to run away from God because of disappointment or let down or hurt, it's often a sign that you need to withdraw. And if you've been zealous for knowing a lot about God, but that knowledge seems stuck in your head and so rarely sinks into your heart, once again, that's a sign that you need to withdraw. You need to carve out time and find a place and draw near to God and then wait for as long as it takes. Wait in the silence until you find the comfort of his presence. Wait until you hear the whisper for yourself. And I've found the best way to hear the whisper of God is through contemplative practices. I don't just want our community to read scripture and know a lot about scripture. That's important. But I want us to learn how to meditate upon scripture, how to inwardly digest it, as the Anglican prayer book says, how to experience scripture. And and you can start by looking into one of two practices, Lectio Divina or Ignatian Contemplation. I don't have time to spell those out this morning. We have lots of resources we could share with you. They're widely available on the Google. But what matters is when you carve out space, when you seek the presence of God, that you don't just go trying to acquire information and read a bunch, that you take a piece of scripture and you dwell with it and you dwell with the truth and you ask the Holy Spirit to comfort you and to care for you and to show you his love. Some of you might need to just draw away for an afternoon. Some of you might need to draw away from a week. I remember a person in our community drew away for eight days of solitude and silence because she just needed to hear this for herself. And I've seen God speak to his people time and time again through solitude. So as we conclude this series on zeal, if you forget everything I said, the one thing I want you to remember is this. Zeal follows love. So if your zeal is weak or waning, don't pursue zeal. That's a dead end. Pursue Christ's love for you and zeal will 